Well, good morning, y'all. Uh, if you uh, brought a Bible with you, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point that Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be in uh, verses 11 and 12 that, that will occupy our time this morning. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you or if uh, you don't own one, there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to... Even though we're really only working on verses 11 and 12, I want to set things up by uh, reading verses 9 down to uh, verse 12. So we're going to go a little backwards and we're going to spend a little time looking at verse 9. Uh, so if you, uh, if you want to follow along with me, I'll have it on the screen above me. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, your name is great and greatly to be praised. As we have heard in song and in scripture, you are immeasurably great. Far bigger than we think or imagine. Would you be gracious this morning? Condescend to us and to grant to us understanding of your most holy word. Would you give us grace to lay our hearts before you, to receive from you what you would speak to us. Give us the eyes that we need in order to see, and the ears that we need in order to hear, in order that we may be equipped with the hands to serve and the feet to go. To the lost, broken, troubled world for the sake of your glory and the advance of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is, in my opinion, one of those verses in the Bible that you can build your life on. It's a foundational verse. And in that verse, you, you find the answer to two of the most important questions that you can ask. Who, who am I and why am I? In verse 9, you find out who you are and you find out why you are. 
Here in verse 9, God the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, tells us that the reason who you are and the reason you were made was as follows. Because God chose you. Because God saved you. He made you his own. He made you a royal priesthood. He made you a holy nation. A people belonging to him. And then he explains why you are. He gives you your identity. He gives you your purpose. Your purpose, as we learned last week, is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, that's our call. That's the meaning of your life. That's the purpose of your life. Somehow or another, wherever you are, with the voice God gave you to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Or to use the, the phrase the Apostle Paul uses, the immeasurable riches of Christ. This is what you do. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is show us again why verse 9 is so meaningful. And God is explaining to us our meaning and our purpose and our identity and, and these most fundamental matters. And we need to see, I think again, how it is that who you are and why you are is not something that you will find outside of yourself. And it's certainly not something you're going to find inside yourself. But meaning, identity, purpose, this is something that comes to you from above, from God. He's the one who decides it for you. And so often, we look for other things to define it for us. We look to other people to define it for us. We look outside of ourselves to find meaning and purpose and identity. We also are told by culture to look inside and find identity and meaning. Who you are is who you are inside. Who you are is who you have to uncover is inside of you and you be true to the real you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches meaning comes from above. Who you are comes from who you aren't. So I want to take a few minutes and I want to see, I want to show you what happens when we look elsewhere for identity and meaning and purpose. What is the, I mean really what's the downside to looking inside? What's the downside to looking to others for meaning? There are a few. Who you are is not found in others. Consider the woman who seeks to find meaning in other people like Other men, for example. Relationships with men. This is where she finds meaning. There's something in her that says she wants to be loved by others. And so she looks for that love from men. She needs validation. That she's lovely. That she's worth loving. And so she looks for that validation in relationships with men. And she goes after those men. But you know, her love for her man is not love really. It's manipulation. She's using him to give her something she needs. That's a one-way street, and that's not love. And so she gets clingy, and she manipulates him through her emotions or through sex to get from him what she wants. But what happens when he lets her down? When he feels smothered and he wants to pull away? 
And she freaks and she clings tighter. She manipulates more and then he leaves. And then what? She's wounded. She's hurt. Maybe she isn't lovely, but that can't be it. So she goes after another man looking for love. And the cycle begins again. But you see who she is is not found in a man. Consider uh, the man who looks for success in a career to give him meaning to his life. And so he'll do whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder or just make an impact in his field in order to get his validation from other people. When they see how successful he is in his business, they will know that his business is successful, therefore he is successful. His business is valid, therefore he is valid. And this is where he finds identity and meaning. Some men will cheat to get there. Other men will lie to get there. But in every case, there are casualties along the way as he climbs his ladder. Because anyone he sees or perceives as a hindrance to him receiving and realizing his goal of being a successful man in business, they're seen as a hindrance to him and he will sacrifice them in order to get his, his goal. So oftentimes that is his own family. That he'll lay them on the altar, as it were, in order for him to reach success. And maybe the hindrance might be a coworker. Maybe it's a subordinate. But he'll do anything he can to remove from him distractions that slow him down. But you see, who he is is not found in the affirmation of others. Some of you have been in churches where the pastor sought meaning, his identity, from the ministry. This might be the worst one of all. Because his identity, his, his meaning, his validation as being a, a servant of God is, is tied up in a, in a very unhealthy way in the numbers of his church or the impact of his ministry. And if a pastor's identity is built into the size of his church or the impact of his ministry, he'll manipulate and control God's people to get validation from them. And suddenly, evangelism, the most, one of the most important and, and holy things a pastor gets his people to do, becomes less about the saving of souls and more about adding numbers. This prostitutes the bride of Christ for his own gain. I have prayed often that the Lord would spare me this sin. Worse yet, this pastor will compromise God's word in order to fill the seats, get the numbers and the validation he seeks. But there are always casualties along the way. I know some of you in this room have felt those casualties in churches you've attended. But that pastor needs to know that who he is, validation he seeks is not in his ministry, not in his people. Who we are is not found in others. And when we seek to find our identity in others, we abuse them and control them and manipulate them. 
And those that we love most become a means to an end. And it never works. And it always fails us. And there are always casualties because who we are is not found in others. And who we are is also not found in ourselves. Now, this is going to cut across the grain here, but who you are is not found in you. See, it's going to cut across the grain because everyone in this room was born into a culture where you were taught that who you are is who you are inside of you. And you have to find meaning within your true self. But the problem with us determining our own identity is that when we're dealing with ourselves, we're terrible at being objective. We're almost totally blind to our own problems, our own issues. When we make ourselves the sovereign over our identity and meaning, it corrupts the whole system. It's like when, it's as as if you would take the criminal and make the criminal the police force and the defense attorney and the judge and the jury. What kind of sentencing will ever be passed? Well, Jamie, turns out, you're going to get off scot-free again. <laughs> Turns out the, uh, the judge and the jury, they both agreed. What you did wasn't that bad. It was other people's fault. Turns out, again, it was other people's fault. You see, we can't look to ourselves to find out who we are. Because learning requires obtaining new information. Outside information. You can't teach yourself something you don't know. Information comes from above you. An additional problem, the the whole situation is complicated even more because we, inside of ourselves, we have a difficult time differentiating between wants and needs. Because they look the same. I want, everything I want is a need. When I'm dealing with me, and barely anything that others want is a need when dealing with them, funnily enough. And for this reason, we can never give ourselves a proper diagnosis because the problems are never our fault. They're always someone else's. And we will justify the worst behavior on the basis that someone made me do it. I'm hurting you because you are making me do it to you. I wouldn't hurt you if you would stop doing that. It's your fault. We'll put in a half-hearted effort at work because we don't think that they pay enough. They don't see the value in me. We won't show our spouse the love in the way they receive love because they're not giving us love in the way we receive love. And in a hundred other ways, that's what we do. See, the biggest problem of looking to yourself for meaning is that it keeps you from the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're looking inside, what you can't see is what's above you. The only place that true identity and meaning is found is in the gospel. And the gospel requires us to recognize that we are our own problem. We are a sinner guilty before Almighty God, guilty of treason against the Creator. 
That we are not the solution. We are the problem. Jesus is the solution. That we don't deserve mercy or grace. We deserve hell. But God showed us mercy. The gospel calls and requires that you look outside of yourself, outside of others, and look to Jesus. And only there, Cornerstone, only there will you find meaning. The gospel gives you identity and purpose. You see this as we come to verse uh, 11. What, what happens here in 11 is very interesting. Paul, Peter, I'm sorry, says, a beloved, he's speaking to these people he's writing to, and they, he's called them in verse 1 of chapter 1, elect exiles. They've been pushed away from their homeland and dispersed among the nations. And he calls them, he reminds them, I said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, it's curious why he would remind them that they are sojourners and exiles. What, have they forgotten Like, they forgot that they got kicked out of their homeland, and now that they live in a land that's not their own, among a people that are not their own, if they've just forgotten this, that he needs to remind them? No, no, no. He's doing this because it is so attached to their identity. I remind you last week, anthropologists have taught us that in the, for for most of human history, what people identified with, where they found who they were, their identifying factors, were basically a few things. They were your, your family, your community, and your craft. That who you were was based on who you were born into, what family you were born into. Who you were was built around what community you were a part of, where, what town you were a part of. And who you were was built on your craft. What you, were you good at? What did you do as a person? If dad was a blacksmith, you would be a blacksmith. If dad was a farmer, you would be a farmer. If your husband was this, that's who you were. And so Peter is reminding them They're sojourners and exiles, which means the umbilical cord that gives them meaning has been severed. Their family pushed them away because they became Christians. No longer do they live inside the community they grew up in where they knew who they were. They weren't there anymore. They were now in some other place. And their their source of meaning was gone from them. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is called Saul of Tarsus. It was so much who you were. What happens when Saul no longer lives in Tarsus? Who is Saul? So so this teaches us something very interesting about the way God works in our lives. God uses the least severe means to cause us to realize our utter dependence on Him. I'm going to say that again. God uses the least severe means to bring you to the realization that you are utterly dependent upon Him. Even if it means severing your source of meaning and identity until you realize who you are is in Christ and not in your job, and not in your spouse, and not in your children, and not in your income level. You see, what he's teaching us is that God had removed these men and women from their homeland. And now as sojourners and exiles, they they find their meaning in him. Once you were not a people, 
No, you're my people. You're people from my own possession. I bought you. You're mine. I just wonder how many of the difficulties and and trials and hardships that we endure, that we blame on others, we blame on just random circumstance, is actually God Almighty severing that source of meaning from you to bring you to the place where you realize Holocaust is Jesus. Just wonder how many of our crises is just God being merciful. Because as we will learn in verse 11, these little things are not little things. This is an issue of the soul. So that was an introduction. Um, What we're going to learn next is that much more is at stake than just you and I finding who we are and why we are. The title of the sermon is War for Souls and Glory. Because we see this in verse 11 and in verse 12. This is what's at stake here. Two things. Your soul and God's glory. I don't know if it could be any bigger. So this is what Peter says. Beloved, in verse 11, I urge you. It's a very strong word in the Greek. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Whether we realize it or not, we are in a war for our soul. The passions of our flesh are waging warfare against our soul. So what are these passions? And how is it that they war against our soul? If you brought a Bible, you're welcome to turn it to Galatians 5. You don't have to. I can read it for you. But Galatians 5 is a, uh, a wonderful background uh, on, on this particular passage. The Apostle Paul is giving us, he's going to explain exactly what the passions of the flesh are. Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul basically saying the same thing as Peter in verse 17. Galatians 5.17, this is what Paul says about the passions of the flesh. The desires of the flesh, same Greek phrase. These are the same Greek words. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Again, there's a war. You're engaged in a war within you. Don't think for a moment that when you say, Lord Jesus, save you, and he saves you eternally, that that war goes away. It intensifies. The flesh wanting to do this, the flesh wanting to respond in this way, the flesh wanting to treat someone that way, the flesh wanting to go to that website, but the spirit warring against those, desi- those desires. And you feel this push. How many of you feel this push and pull? in you every day every day by the way that struggle as much as we hate that 
as much as we hate like feeling why do I why my flesh want to do this why did I respond so quickly why is that my like default response to be like that by the way when you feel that 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 angst that you feel that's evidence that God the Holy Spirit is doing what the God the Holy Spirit does in you the moment you feel that is a problem so, so, so be okay with that. Skip down to verse 19. What are these passions of the flesh Peter mentions? Well, Paul gives us the list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And here he gives us a whole bunch of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's the passions of your flesh. And these are waging war against your soul. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that means it's more than just a little impurity. It's more than just a tiny bit of sensuality. It's more. So what if I'm jealous? Everybody's jealous. So what if I get angry? Doesn't everyone get angry? It's just a more than a little drunkenness. I was just having fun. It's more than just a, a little division. Oh, we're just having a spat. This is a matter of the soul. Peter says, it's war. So the next question is, how is it that this is a war? Like, how do these sins, how do they wage war against our soul? How is it that the passions of the flesh are waging war against the soul? As I said, these, I mean, honestly, Everyone struggles with these sins. Who's not, who's not guilty of a little envy? Who's not guilty of a little dissension? We all are. How can these be a matter of the soul? How can Paul feel good about telling the people in Galatia, if you practice drunkenness, you're not going to heaven? You don't want us to go to weddings? You don't want us to have fun? What I want you to see about what Paul listed there. All of these sins have something in common. They're all self-focused. They're all self-justifying. They're all self-pleasing. And this is what makes them killers. Because when we're looking to ourselves, we're not looking to God. We're seeking self-justification, not God's justification. We're not crying out. We're not finding our dependence on Him. We're seeking what we want. And, And therefore, the solution to the problem of our souls is hidden from us. First Peter 2.9 says, God is calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But when we engage in sin like this, when we practice these sins, 
we don't find his light marvelous. It's exposing to us. We don't run to it. We run from it. I remind you of what Jesus said in John chapter 3. This is Jesus' words. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness more than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Selfish sins war against our soul, keeping us from responding to God's call to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Sin keeps us from seeing that light as marvelous. And we refuse his call and we cling to darkness and we damn ourselves eternally. And this is why Peter says, abstain. It's not just a little sin. It will kill you. And you need to abstain. And you need to run from these sins. Like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, run. Run naked down the streets if necessary. Run. Even to your own shame, run. But that's not all that's at stake in these matters. Verse 12 says, this is also a war for God's glory. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Another way of phrasing that is beautiful. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when, you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as a sojourner, as an exile, God has placed you among the Gentiles, just unbelievers, to shine as light. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh is a matter of the soul, but it's also a matter of God's glory because of the impact and the effect that abstaining from passions has on others. So he says, keep your conduct, which is your way of life, honorable. And he says, keep it honorable among the Gentiles. You know, if you're a sojourner and an exile, an alien, a stranger, a pilgrim, somebody just passing through, the temptation is to withdraw from society and not to engage society. But Peter won't allow that. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. You're among them. You don't withdraw from them. So it's why we don't build our church in the hills. And be a weirdo community. We live among the people. We live among the culture. To engage the culture, not withdraw from it. Faith is not a private matter. It's a public one. People are looking to your life to see how you will live. To see if your lifestyle lives up to what you say you believe. Jesus has called us to be a city on a hill, a light in the world. One of my favorite things about Peter is when, when, 
God saved him and, and then Pentecost happened, happened and he's in, in, endued with this like um, boldness to preach, tell people about Jesus. And Luke, who wrote the, God, the, the book of Acts, he, he tells us this about what happened to Peter early in those days. He preaches and people hear him preaching. They don't like it. He's very bold. He's very in your face. He's very like, you killed Jesus. You need to repent. That kind of preaching. No one in here is familiar with that kind of preaching. But he says this in Acts chapter 4 about Peter. Luke says this. Now when they, that's the people that didn't like Peter's preaching, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, for one, but look what else Luke says about their reaction. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. There's something about boldness in the face of adversity that exposes you've been with Jesus. So I wonder, is your face so bold that a coworker would say, she's been with Jesus or something? Peter says two things will happen in your life when you live it honorably among unbelievers. He says one thing will happen is that they will speak against you as evildoers. They will see what you're doing. They will see what you say and they will speak against you. They will see your life and they will call you an evildoer. She's like, how's that work? If I'm doing good things, why would they ever call me an evildoer? Well, in Peter's day, this is how it worked. The emperor's name was Nero. He didn't like Christians, and he blamed Christians for, I quote, be hating the human race, end quote, because Christians refused to offer sacrifices to Roman gods who were meant to protect the human race. So if you're not going to offer a sacrifice to a Roman god, you must hate the human race, and so he blamed them for hating humans. In our day, this is how it works, works in a number of different ways. You believe in a biblical definition of marriage? You evildoers, you hate gays. Oh, you believe that abortion should be illegal? You evildoer, you hate women's rights. You only believe in two genders? You hate transgenders. This is how it works in our day, but this is to be expected. And we ought to be prepared for this. Because the Bible tells us what to do when that happens. The Bible says, when they come against what you believe, you, um, you make a blog, you pick it, target, you use Sharpie markers to make signs and stand out front of places and tell everyone how you hate them. Actually, what the Bible says in verse 12 is that you're supposed to, when they call you evildoers for serving Jesus, you do good deeds. So if, if they hate you, if they think you're an evildoer because you protect the unborn, do good deeds. If they think you hate women's rights, build pregnancy centers. Take care of single moms. 
take care of teenage moms with unwanted pregnancies. Work for adoption reform for unwanted children. Build adoption centers. Help unwanted children find a good home. Parents that love them. Share the gospel. Show the beauty of a Christ-centered marriage. Do good deeds. If they accuse you of bigotry because they think you hate homosexuals, reach out to the gay community and love them. And show them that their sin, their homosexual sin is the same as your heterosexual sin. We're both saved by grace through faith. Jesus died for you the same as he died for me. It's all sexual immorality. And that God has a better way. May our deeds speak louder than their words. Because in so doing, the Bible says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think Peter got this from Jesus because Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let the accusations come, but let them be silenced as we show good deeds. We don't hate anyone. We love them. Let your good deeds be so Christ-like, so selfless, so giving, so expecting nothing in return that your accusers are bewildered. And let them see it and let them ask why. Why would you, why would you do that? And then give him 1 Peter 2.9. Proclaim his excellencies. When they ask, tell them just how excellent. Look, what I have done is nothing special. What's special is what Jesus did. What's special is who Jesus is. Sure, an unwed mother who got pregnant, she did wrong. And now she's in crisis. And I'm tempted to tell her that it's her fault. It's her problem. But then I remember how often I did wrong. And how often I'm the own, my own victim of my own crime. And Jesus loved me anyway. He was merciful to me and he came to save me. And so the least I can do is reach out to her in her crisis. Sure, I think homosexuality is sin. And I'm tempted to disassociate from homosexuals. But how sinful was I when God saved me? He didn't disassociate from me because I'm sinful. He came to me in my sin. When I was acting on my sinful impulse, Jesus loved me when I was unlovely. Sure, I think Islam is wrong. I think it can tend toward violence. And I'm tempted, like anyone else, to think that Muslims are the enemies. But then I realize I was an enemy before God came to save me. I was one of those terrorists that put Jesus on the cross. And he went there willingly for the sake of me. This applies to so many things. I've got a list of like 10 here. Sure, I got looked over for a promotion and I'm tempted to be offended. But then I remember that my identity is not in my career, it's in Jesus and he made himself nothing for me. Sure, my spouse 
or my boyfriend or my girlfriend sinned against me and it hurts deeply and I'm tempted to leave them, be unfaithful to them. But then I remember how unfaithful I was to Jesus a thousand times over and he kept coming for me and he kept being faithful to me. Sure, I'm upset with my diagnosis and my sickness and I'm tempted to blame God. I'm tempted to think I don't deserve it. But then I remember he bore my sins and my sickness so that I could be healed. Maybe this life, but for sure in the next. And I can't claim that I deserve to be healed. I deserve death. But God is faithful, and he suffered well for my sake, so I'll suffer well for his. And maybe, maybe in so doing, maybe in so saying, maybe in so living among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, maybe God would be pleased to show one of them the glory of the gospel in your life and then to cause them to turn from sin and to be proclaimers of his excellencies with you and God would be glorified among you. That's what's at stake here. This is your identity. It's your soul and God's glory. In your workplace, in your family, that's what's at stake here. Your life is more than just learning who you are. This is a greater than just you realizing who you are. It's about realizing whose you are. It's about realizing His will and His purpose and his glory in all things. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to reread the passage again. And, and as I read these words, I want, I'm going to ask you three questions. And as we're reading them, search your heart how you might answer these questions. The first question that I want you to be asking as we read through God's Word is, am I looking for my identity in something other than God's Son? Is who I am in other people, or is it in me, or is it some other kind of thing? Where am I seeking validation? The next question I want you to be answering as you listen to this word and pray in a minute is that are you treating sin as if it were a small matter? Is it just a little compromise? Is it just a little sin in your life? Is it just a little this, a little that? Or do you recognize it for what it is? Warfare for your soul. And then the third question is, Are you living your life according to the gospel in such a way that others would see those good works in you and glorify your Father in heaven? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved Cornerstone, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles in Piqua, in Sydney, in Miami County, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct at the hospital, at the school, at home, among your friends, among your family, on the weekend get-togethers. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us this morning in exposing the wells we're seeking to draw meaning from, showing it's full of dirt. There's no life there. And I thank you, Father, for severing those lines, those umbilical cords, until we realize our true dependence on you alone. And so I ask for myself and for those I get to serve every week that you would move upon us as we sing. Convict us of our sins and give us grace to repent of those sins and turn to you to find meaning and purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.